and welcome to Monkey Club, a journey through the history of Simeon Cinema. My name is Chris Larson. I'm Chris Mattiello. And today is episode 7 where we'll be discussing 1968's Planet of the Apes. And joining us today is one of the co-founders of the Cage Club podcast and now currently recording Keanu Club, Mike Manzi. Mike, welcome to Monkey Club. Thank you guys. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Planet of the Apes, such an iconic movie, and this was my first time ever seeing it. Before we jump in, can I put something out there for the three of us, the Tribunal of Humans? I think this movie deserves some more respect than the usual Monkey Club fair. How about uh, no games for this one? I think we need as much time as possible for this very special episode. We're not going to get too many times where we can talk about a great movie it's like King Kong, this... We have a lot more Shockmas than we do Planet of the Apes. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I agree. It's your your show. You run it your way. I'm yeah, here for let, the ride. Now let's gush about how great this movie is. <laughs> it's really fantastic. And Mike, I know it's it's a favorite of yours. Well, the whole series is, right? Yeah, guys, dare I say, I've been telling people for the past, I don't know, 20 years that this may, in fact, be my all-time favorite movie. It just has everything... I love in sci-fi, and every time I watch it, I discover something new, and I remember knowing about Planet of the Apes growing up from my older siblings, but it wasn't really until I was 13 where I sat down and watched the movie on my own for the first time that I really fell in love with it and went out and rented all the sequels, and, you know, warts and all, this is probably my favorite franchise out there. Yeah, I mean, I had seen bits and pieces of it on cable, bits and pieces of most of the movies, but this is the one that is shown the most often, I'm, I'm assuming. And I knew the twist ending thanks to The Simpsons. Of course. In fact, most of what I know about Planet of the Apes, or most of what I knew going into it, was from Stop This Crazy Planet of the Apes, I Want to Get Off. Help, the human's about to escape. Get your paws off me, you dirty ape! It, it is kind of a bummer knowing the whole time that it's Earth, but it didn't really take that much out of it. Yeah, I feel like the movie has enough other stuff going on with it that it really can stand on its own. Really, it's just the final shot of the film, but that is such a iconic shot. It says so much going on. But yeah, and it's also one of those movies that sort of has to be spoiled. It's mentioned so many times throughout the years and referenced yeah. and remade that, like, I think by now, you know, m more people know the ending to this movie that haven't seen it than any other, possibly. I feel like the only people for whom this was a surprise were the first few audiences who saw this in 1968. I feel like this is one of those movies that's in the canon of kind of uh, the Statue of Limitations spoilers is long gone. You know, it's a Luke, I am your father, mm -hmm. Norman Bates in Psycho, and things like that. That's just, no one gets to be surprised about this anymore. Yeah, and like I said, I think there's just, once you get into this film, there's a lot of other stuff to discover about it, too, for, for first-time viewers, even if you did know the ending. I'm, I'm kind of with you on, on uh, when I initially saw this. I think I was about 10, and I caught the first one with my father on, you know, like, an AMC or something like that and immediately wanted to see the rest of them. Now, I don't hold the 
rest of the franchise in quite as high of esteem as you do, Mike. But this one, I was really excited to come back to it because I hadn't seen it since about that age. And one of the things that I really noticed and that really stood out to me as someone who had watched the Twilight Zone uh, all the way through when it was on Netflix, this does really, really feel like a Rod Serling script. Mm -hmm. The thing I like the most about the Twilight Zone and about a lot of sci-fi from the 50s and 60s is that there were a lot of issues that you just couldn't talk about in modern pop culture, so they were discussed in a roundabout way through science fiction. Lots of Twilight Zone episodes dealt with social issues, and of course, uh, Star Trek was mm -hmm. sort of mm -hmm. this vision of a utopian multicultural society, and that was right around the same time as Planet of the Apes, and there is a lot that this movie goes into. Racism, animal testing, the separation of church and state, so much. It kind of thematically has a very similar ending to a uh, famous Twilight Zone episode. Um, who the title is The Monsters on Maple Street. Mm -hmm. uh, is that the one I'm thinking of where the people who you think are the good guys are the monsters all along? I think that's like the twist of a lot of Twilight Zone. I know Because <laughs> at the end, when he's damning them, I think people always think in that scene he's damning those dirty apes, and that's a misconception, he's damning the humans that he left behind. Yes. It's such a surling twist. I think one reason, like, all these really heavy issues work so well, I mean, aside from being sort of under the guise of science fiction, is that it never comes across really as preachy or in your face, you know? Like, it's, an, it's still at its core mostly an adventure film. And it's got some great action. It's got some good comedy. I mean, it's just the situation itself, right? Like, apes evolved from man instead of man evolving from apes. I mean, even that from the source material of the book really just stands so strong on its own that all these other issues just feel almost like a byproduct of putting someone in that situation. You know, it. I got sort of flashes to movies like Inherit the Wind at times about the debates, but then I also thought of like White Man's Burden with John Travolta, you know, where it's basically like this weird view of life if the white and black races were reversed and the African-Americans were living the privileged life and John Travolta is this, you know, white guy from the ghetto. I don't know. It's almost inherent of the situation that all these issues will, will come up. So it feels almost natural in that way that this is the discussion that would come from making a movie like this. That's interesting you bring that up and that's kind of what this old sci-fi was all about, this Rod Serling kind of stuff, is that the issues are there and the lessons are there, but you can choose to just enjoy it on its surface as a sci-fi movie. And it's not beating you over the head with this man is the real monster kind of thing. And it could be. It could be much preacher than it is. I'm sure many, many people saw this movie and just came out of it just having enjoyed a, a movie with a guy who gets captured by monkeys and didn't pick up on any of that. But it's satire. That's what satire does. It gets you to think about things without beating you over the head with it or, or spelling it out for yeah, you. Yeah, there's a long line of great movies that, especially from this time when things were so pretentious, that the subtext is so textual that it wraps back around to subtext again. Um, another one I'm thinking of is Night of the Living Dead. Yes. I think those are some of, from this time, some of the best examples of movies that are trying to preach isn't the right word, but maybe preach is actually the right word. Yeah, I think they want to start a conversation for the younger people that, mm -hmm. you know, might fall upon deaf ears of, you know, the, don't trust anyone over 30. That line is even uttered in this movie, you know? Yeah. Like, I, 
So it's almost like subliminal advertising to teenagers, you know? It's like, get them to talk about the real issues through entertainment. Sci-fi at this time, I mean, atomic scares and atomic crisis and things like that. Sci-fi was a place that was really throwing in uh, a lot and a lot of subtext about uh, society, environments, all of that kind of stuff. And this really shoves it all into, it's like, Oh, it, this is maybe Serling's biggest manifesto. Yeah, that's true. And there is a young character in it that sort of represents that young counterculture demographic. We'll get to him, but let's just dive in. Let's start from the beginning. And it, the, the film opens up with Charlton Heston enjoying a cigarello in space, <laughs> which, uh, you know, I mean, I guess we hadn't been to space yet, so we didn't know you couldn't smoke there. Now, he's about to leave for the mission, or is he coming back from the mission? This part confused me. To the best of my understanding, they're on the mission. Like, they've, they've started the first leg of the mission. I think it's like an interstellar deal where, like, he had to put everybody into hypersleep, and now yeah. he goes down, and they expect to wake up back on Earth. So they sort of go out to research some distant star, and yeah, I think now they're on their way home. Well, they say later that they're going to establish a new civilization, because the, the woman on the crew is supposed to be their Eve, which I found to be a bit creepy, especially the way they described how the three of them were going to, uh, you know do it with her <laughs> but like I, I don't know it's very confusing whether they're coming or going and they even say that they won't be back for 700 years which i thought was weird because why go out and do any sort of research and then come back 700 years later like anything you could have possibly done will be done by the time you get back yeah, I'm not sure they were supposed to come back. The whole time dilation thing, which I appreciate it, since that is, you know, a real, you know, scientific concept, is that when you're traveling at light speed, you move slower than everybody else. Um, so I appreciated that they had only gone four years, but Earth had gone something like 500 years. Which, yeah, it made me think that they weren't coming back, especially because he talks about he being Charlton Heston, uh, Taylor talks about he left because he was really not happy with how the course of humanity was going at the time. He says, I leave the 20th century with no regrets. Which was kind of strange that if he's going to abandon humanity, that he would be part of this expedition to go start a new world somewhere with these humans. You'd think that he would be on maybe a solo mission out to discover a planet or something like that. Um, I Yeah, now that it dawns on me, they are just going out there to explore to find a new world and I, yeah, I don't believe they're coming back but it is a little strange that you would maybe think that this would be like a colony ship or something and you'd want to see maybe with a bigger budget that the whole ship gets destroyed and only like four or five guys survive to the surface yeah low budget or no it's a cool spaceship and when it crashes it's in the middle of the lake and it's sticking out of the lake and we talked about this with king kong Somebody actually built that spaceship, and it looks cool. And we'll get into the, the ape village later, which looks really cool. But the set design and the art direction is very impressive. Yeah, there's a great minimalist kind of vibe going on. You see, again, this is sort of a byproduct of 50s, 60s sci-fi art design, you know? And I think it's great, and it's something like nowadays everything has to be super highly detailed and shit but like on their ship they have egg cartons you know basically like pasted backwards and it looks great and 
Yeah, I love the way the ship crashes. You get sort of um, the ship's point of view, right? Like like you're almost strapped to the nose of this as it's diving towards the planet and, and splashing down. It just it's really it's a really good like action beat. I don't know. It just shakes you up from those opening credits, which are also great, but it's just so different because they're much more drifty through space with that music going and stuff. Almost you know, it's great, but it like almost puts you to sleep, and then boom, this crash landing. The way the camera just kind of swoops through the the canyons. Most of the film is filmed in this very picturesque canyon area, probably outside of Los Angeles. Uh, Actually, uh, the Utah-Arizona border at Lake Powell, I read. Sounds about right. They're shooting in this environment that already looks great. And the, the camera work, the framing of the shots, especially this crash landing scene, where the camera's swooping around, it all just looks fantastic. Yeah, this director's going to make a lot of positive choices throughout the film. You know, there's a lot of moments that can really come across hokey or just completely fail, I feel, in inferior hands. But this director knows how to shoot special effects, how to get maximum impact out of minimum resources, and it's on display here the whole time. The movie just looks great, I feel, throughout the entire film. Yeah, on paper, the concept of this movie nowadays seems like it would be laughable and it would look cheap, but it holds up against all odds a movie from the 60s where monkeys capture a man in a post-apocalyptic world. It's a solid film that looks good, and who would have thought? King Kong had the same thing going Mm -hmm. for it. Yeah, and I think it's really important, at least for me when I was watching it, that this did look so good. Uh, because I think this is maybe the part of the movie that if there's any part that maybe goes on a bit too long, this would be it. I think they're trying to character build Taylor here, but it might be a, a misstep in my mind. I think they make him a bit too much of a nihilist. Um, he seems to really not care. He says, yeah, hey, everyone that you ever loved is dead. Oh, yeah, like, nihilism, I think, is the right word for it. Uh, and it's just a lot of extended walking, talking about how nothing can grow here. We don't really see the apes until maybe about the 30-minute mark. And... I get that they're trying to build that up and save it uh, to be this surprising moment. This movie is called Planet of the Apes, uh, and I would like to get to the apes a little bit earlier, especially since the great Charlton Heston is walking around with these two sacks of dead meat. <laughs> I hear you. It, it actually bothers me less and less every time I watch this, but I was certainly like the first few times, you know, let's get on with this. But I, I think one thing they're trying to do, aside from, you know, just showing that Taylor feels like he's where exactly where he wants to be, right? Like nobody's around. He's the last of his kind. Like this almost feels like he is in paradise to a degree. And then the other thing I think it's trying to do in a way is set up just how kind of small and insignificant these these guys are. Like they are totally marooned here. There's no getting off and they really want to stress all of that. They barely make it through three days of rations. They're mostly shot from super far away, you know, really just trying to get the sense of smallness and scale and stuff. And and I think that it helps because Heston is such a macho man throughout the whole movie and basically throughout his whole career. He's just like super imposing just regardless, just naturally, you know, even when yeah. he's acting not to be. So you have to do a little something extra here and drag it out and set it up to show his inferiority in another way. And it is just like compared to the vastness, like he, you know, he, he talks the talk, but he can still starve out here just like these other guys. Yeah, I, I have in my notes, Taylor is a jerk. Yeah. 
<laughs> because he really is. But, you know, it's it's in service of this idea that he has grown so cynical from his experiences on Earth and his observation of history. Nihilistic is definitely the word. But he wouldn't have gone on this trip if he didn't have some kind of optimism somewhere. And Mike, I definitely agree with you that these scenes show their insignificance, especially in the shots where it's shot from far away and they're scrambling over rocks. It reminded me a lot of, I'm going to keep going back to King Kong, not just because it's probably the only other legitimately good movie we've covered so far on Monkey Club, but the reveal of King Kong doesn't happen until a quarter of the way through the movie, at least. And we go a good half hour without meeting the apes. Yeah. And it's not like people didn't know what the apes looked like. I'm sure they were featured in the advertising heavily, just like King Kong was. So it's not so much building up to the reveal of the apes as it is the, the things that Mike mentioned. The feeling of isolation, the smallness of them. They don't come across the apes first. They come across other humans Yes. First. Yeah, and the scarecrows, which, you know, they're supposed to work, right? Like, they were there for a reason. They should have, like, you, you just feel like they should have known better. But at this point, they're just, they need water. They need food. They're actually just following the plant life, which leads them to the waterfall, which leads them to the humans. And they're like, yeah, we could run this joint, no problem, right? Like, six weeks, we'll be running this place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Taylor says that. He's like, uh, this is all we have to deal with. We'll be running the place in, in a month. One thing about the humans right off the bat, too, is uh, instantly you get the sense that something is up, right? Like, these are cavemen, basically, and I think the movie does that immediately, and that's tricky, you know? It's just right there on the screen. Immediately. You just get the sense that these are human beings, but they're not people like you and I. There's something off about them. I think did they find the Oasis before that? Because I thought that was some beautiful set design. Yeah, they find the Oasis yeah. and they go skinny dipping. Yeah, we get to see some Heston butt. Yeah, a lot of male ass in this movie. <laughs> Rated G, too. Those were the days. Yeah, I thought that was gorgeous. I thought these scarecrows... Uh, I did have a question about that, though. In-universe, were those supposed to be flayed humans or flayed mm. apes? Who were they supposed to ward off? Like, who was that supposed to be a warning to? Because I Good. think later on, when they show at near the end of the movie, when they're returning to the Forbidden Zone, I'm almost positive that those scarecrows have fur on their skin. I always imagined that it was the apes marking the boundary of the Forbidden Zone, but now that you bring this up, you know, it's like I always discovered something new watching this, and this this is definitely something I buy into. You know, it, it's almost as if the humans were able to capture an ape a couple times, yeah, and set this up almost like Ramsey Bolton or something like that as a, a warning to the other apes. Or maybe a sign to humans saying, you know, this is what we do to apes, be part of our clan. The humans don't seem like they pose any threat to the apes. That would be interesting if they had introduced a type of human, and maybe this happens later in the series, I, I don't know. But if they introduced a type of human that was dangerous and was aggressive, because the humans that are shown are basically harmless animals, grazing in fields, eating fruit from trees, they don't seem like they pose much of a threat to the apes. Yeah, they're even less than ape-like in our society, right? Like, they're, you know, they're more like deer 
or something like that. That's a good point. And Taylor and his crew come across these humans, and like you said, they, they realize something's up. All of a sudden, the apes show up, and that's where shit gets real. It's a really cool scene where the apes are basically hunting down the humans. They're killing some, they're capturing some, and at first I was like, are they hunting them or are they capturing them? But really, they're doing both. Yeah, I just love how, once again, we're sort of lulled into this false sense of security. <laughs> like, uh, you know, everything's going to be great. And then, boom, the horns, the sticks, the horses, the apes. And, damn, they're pretty terrifying right off the bat. Like, showing the gorilla was a good choice because I feel like the makeup on those are the best. And, yeah, at first I was like, are they just doing like a cull? Are they wiping out this sector of humans? Is this a hunt? But it almost comes to be like a big game hunt, like a sport more, right? Like, we'll catch some, we'll kill some. Let's just go have some fun hunting some humans today. Yeah, and when it's all done, they're posing with a dead human on the ground. And it it's an obvious sort of criticism of hunting. Yeah, it's our first sort of um, big theme, big issue right? Well, one of the first big ones, the first one that's overt, that could really come across as kind of hokey, but instead I find it to be extremely creepy and scary. It's like our first big Twilight Zone moment when they're posing for the camera and you're like, wait a minute, they have cameras? Like, that seems very modern and, you know, all this stuff. And then they have a whole city, like, yikes, like, you know, these apes are, these are more than apes, like intelligent apes. It's just like, to me, it's very scary. (laughs) And seeing those piles of dead human bodies and the way that it's no big deal to them, it's kind of eye-opening because when you go hunting or whatever, the body of a dead deer means nothing to to a hunter. But when you see a a dead human being being treated like that on screen, it's a really effective image. It's really ballsy too, right, for this type of movie? Um like the level of implied violence going on here and what is seemingly advertised as like not a children's film but at least family entertainment and it's just nice that there's this like juxtaposition you know of violence and absurdity because you really need that to keep your mind balanced while you're watching this kind of thing i feel to like suspend your disbelief and really accept this is happening you know i mean I feel like if I was Taylor, I'd probably lose my mind at this moment and <laughs> collapse into, like, a little ball or something. Yeah, that's a good point. In a lot of, like, H.P. Lovecraft, that, that idea that we as humans are not the greatest things anymore, that there is something superior to us that we can't understand is something that drives a lot of those characters uh, in those stories insane. And yeah, you're right. I totally could have seen one of the, the meat shield astronauts he was with just losing their mind and running off or something like that. They don't explain why the humans are quite so zombie-esque, so primitive, other than, I guess, the idea that they prove themselves back to the Stone Age. But, I mean, that could be an idea of it. Like, maybe the human psyche could no longer understand Mm. uh, this kind of reverse evolution that's occurred. I don't know if you guys have read the actual novel at all. It's one of the few books I've read, like, more than once in my life. And (laughs) now that I remember it a little bit, like... I thought you were going to say it's one of the few books I've read. (laughs) 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 Reread. But, um... One of the people on the expedition, you know, is, is a doctor who isn't nearly well trained as the astronauts or the other people involved. And he actually does end up losing his mind and regressing almost into the, the Landon state 
of the character Landon, who they later lobotomized. That's sort of a reference to the book character, too. But there's some subtle differences, not that many, but I mean, throughout, I might mention one or two more. Yeah, I mean, there are moments where Taylor just kind of freaks out. It's a manhouse! A manhouse! But, like, it's impressive that he can handle all this craziness. And it's not just the fact that apes are in charge, which is crazy enough already, but it's the web of sort of bureaucratic craziness that he gets sucked into, Mm. which we'll get to, because now, during this hunt, he gets captured and is brought back to this sort of animal observation lab. And he's being examined by Zara, is that her name? Zira. Zira. And she's working with another scientist. And this is the first time that the ape hierarchy is introduced. Mm-hmm. The person that Zira is working with says, like, oh, I, I'd get a promotion if I wasn't a chimpanzee or something like that. I mean, Mike, you you have more of a background in this movie. Tell us a little bit about the hierarchy in this ape society. There's definitely a class system structure going on with with the different apes. So the gorillas are basically the military force. You know, they're the militants. They're the right hand of the orangutans, who are basically all the politicians and hold all the power. And then at the bottom, you have the chimps because... They're curious and they are scientists and they're the thinkers and the, you know, and they're basically more toward the bottom of the social scale. And that's why there's all of this sort of bureaucracy going on and, and Zira sort of becoming an ally with Taylor almost to defy the system, you know, her in her own way and stuff. So that's, that's how I always saw it going on. Immediately when Taylor is taken captive, it brings about these metaphors of racism and even a big statement about animal testing, you know, because they're they're constantly saying, like, we can do whatever we want to these things because they're animals. Yeah, they can't object, right? And one of the sweet ironies of this sequence is that Taylor's been shot in the throat, so while he knows how to speak, he physically can't talk to them, so... <laughs> They don't think of him really as any different than any of the other humans, even though he's the only blonde one with blue eyes out there, too. I just kind of noticed that. That, They might want to study him just for that reason alone. But um, it's almost like being in a coma and being able to hear everything going on but not do anything. It's like he can talk, but he can't talk. So he can't communicate with them. So it's like they're going to cut him open. They're going to castrate him. They're going to do all this stuff to him. And like he has no way to stop it. Yeah, I really appreciate this scene very neatly and very succinctly, giving us the idea that even though the ape society is the dominant society on this mystery planet, they are not necessarily a civilized society. They're just as civilized as we were, really. Like, the ape society is meant to be sort of a carnival mirror version of modern human society because we hunt, we conduct experiments on animals, Animals. There's racism, but in this movie version, the victims are us. We're the ones who are being hunted. We're the ones who are being experimented on, and it provides that sort of image to make us think about the things 
that exist in our society yeah. and still do. And there's a little there's a little moment that I love. Uh, it's not right here. It comes up uh, in a second when eventually Taylor convinces Zira that he is an intelligent creature, that he can write. And there's a moment where he's written a bunch of stuff, and um, Roddy McDowell's ape, Dr. Uh, it's Cornelius, correct? Zira's fiance. Yeah, still doesn't quite believe in, in Taylor, and Taylor just makes this little uh, paper airplane and throws it. And these two, like, uh, intelligent for their culture, brilliant scientists are just baffled by a simple aerodynamics. It's just this little scene that, uh, this little moment in the background that I absolutely love that comes straight from this. Yeah, it's pretty great. Another thing I had in my notes is that before Taylor can talk, Zira calls him Bright Eyes. Yeah. And Bright Eyes reminds me of two things. One is the song Total Eclipse of the Heart, where she says, turn around, bright eyes. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. And the other is the early 2000s emo. Yep. I'll never be able to hear Total Eclipse of the Heart or a Connor Oberst song again without thinking of shirtless, screaming Charlton Heston. (laughs) Yeah, and I wonder if either or both of those things were inspired by Planet of but yeah, he's kept for observation by Zero. Zero's fiance Cornelius, played by Roddy McDowell of Shock Mustang, <laughs> is a wait, wait. Is an archaeologist. Is he your first returning actor for Monkey Club? Yeah, I believe about he that? must be. I suppose. I mean, we we mentioned during the Shockma episode that he was in Planet of the Apes. Okay. But clearly, this is a step up. From <laughs> or that was a step down because it came later. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, I'm all messed up with time because of Planet of the Apes. Yeah, he writes words in the sand, and his mate... Well, let's talk about the girl that he's paired up with. Yeah, I was just about Um, to mention this. Nova? Nova. Obviously, she's just there for sort of eye candy purposes. Yeah, I think she was like a producer's wife actually and like so that's how one of the reasons she got the part but i actually think she's really beautiful in this movie and she serves the purpose like instantly you know like she's supposed to be the pick of the litter you know a part of my expression but like that's how they're treated in this film and they really want taylor to mate so they bring him the best stock that they have and it's nova and he is able to just be with her physically because she's beautiful and like he even has that little moment to himself where he's like you're just an animal can i love you even though you don't understand me is it right ah, i don't know <laughs> yeah, that's that's actually extremely important she is not just there well okay on the surface she is just there to be some some skin and a love interest for charlton heston but it's very important that the only two women in this movie uh, are women that charlton heston he does kind of romance them both hmm. he gives that kiss at the end to the ape who signifies him desiring like the intelligence and the bravery and the humanism aspect which is in the ape and he wants to fuck he wants to be an animal like he's that animal nature on the human and i think that's an important dichotomy that the movie sets up for the themes that uh, it's trying to uh, explain to talk about yeah i mean i i wasn't even thinking that but that's a very good point. because the first time that you see uh that you see her in the ape village zero is basically just kind of using her as like a treat because mm-hmm. Charlton Heston is like her new favorite pet. Uh, Zero just shoves her in the cage with him. He's like, here you go. You saw that you like this one, boy. Do what you got to do with it. Like, I feel like they're just thinking like this. This is what animals do. 
they eat, they shit, and they fuck. So let's give him one of the ones that's enjoyable because we like this one. And I love what like a unknowingly like what a giant mistake she's making because like you know if they have a kid that can talk, it's all over for ape society. You know, like that is the start of it all. <laughs> well, we haven't even introduced Doctor Zayas. Yes. Yet. And Dr. Zayas is an orangutan. He's a member of the ruling class, and he has very specific views on humans. Yeah, and life and society. Like, he is minister of science and faith and religion, right? Like, it seems in our society, kind of, that you should be one or the other. But this guy is in total control of Ape City, pretty much. He is ruling it. Dr. Zayas's position, it's... You know, if you were to make that sort of parallel with human society, that doesn't really exist anymore. It's sort of like a medieval kind of thing. His job, basically, is to make sure that any science that happens does not go against established religious dogma. Which he may have established. (laughs) Like, I get the sense that he's like rewriting history also in almost like a Stalin slash nineteen eighty four type way where, you know, anytime there's an idea that's emerged that is contrary to the new world order, like it's gonna get quelled pretty quickly. Dr. Zayas represents this kind of like medieval papal scholar, uh, maybe even like a Pope esque figure for this community, who is interpreting the dogma of this lawgiver and then handing down doctrine and religious law to the people and is in direct conflict with the science aspect of it. Um, They're really setting this up, this ape society, as an early civilization if they're trying to mirror it to a human civilization. It's like a crucial, almost like renaissance period for them, Mm. where like it could either, science seems to be taking over the religious aspect, and that's what Dr. Zayas is the most afraid of. He's also deeply racist against humans. He speaks about humans the way that pseudo-educated white people would talk about minorities. He calls them natural-born thieves and natural killers. You know, he's like, oh, it's just in their nature. They're simple savages. In a weird way, though, like, by the end of this movie, not to jump ahead too far, though, uh, is that he's not entirely wrong, you know? Like, he has proof of what humans are capable of, and you can almost understand where he's coming from. I mean, he is a fanatic, but he's trying to protect, you know, his people. And, you know, the, the truth is that, yeah, like, if you give humans too much, like, look what they've done to one society. They'll do it again if given the chance. So to us, again, because we're the humans, we may see it as, like, going too far, but not that I understand, you know, warlords and despots in our societies either, and I'm not saying, like, their point of view why certain races shouldn't exist is right or anything like that, but, I mean, you know, these are two different species. The humans in this are not a form of ape or simian, you know. They are a different animal entirely, and if they do evolve to think better, they could just wipe it all out again. That's a very good point, and I think that reveal at the end of the movie is almost more shocking and more poignant than the fact that it's been Earth all along. The fact that Dr. Zayas is, despite the fact that he puts on this thing about being religious and subscribing to these scrolls, he knows the history. And the fact that he does, the fact that he knows that humans did this and humans are nothing but trouble, 
they use up all the resources, and then they blow themselves up. He knew that all along, but we'll get to that. Well, it's great how his sort of behavior, you can kind of, if you go back and we watch this movie, you can track it. Like, you, he gives little tells, like he knows more than he's letting on. Oh, when, yeah. when Taylor writes in the sand, you know, he erases the rest that's already there. He sees, like, a letter, and he's like, oh, shit, I can't let anyone know a human wrote a letter. And they have that whole trial, and they really just make an example out of him, and that's all Zayas, you know? And I just feel like, yeah, he's... He's there masterminding. I mean, Dr. Zeiss is a, is a great character. Can't really argue that. His religious fanaticism, especially using his religious text to persecute people, like there's a great example of why when you're analyzing a movie, you can't only look at authorial intent. Because I feel like that is more of a today reading than it was like a 1969 reading. I think that's a really interesting kind of thing that we pulled from this because, you know, the persecution of gays transgender, all that, and the Bible being the source material for that wasn't as much of an open thing back then. So I, I doubt that Sterling was putting it in there. But I mean, it's like I said, death of the author. It's it's a clear interpretation that Isaiah is this, yeah, this religious fanatic who's using his text to persecute an entire species. Fucked up. Eventually, Taylor breaks free, and there's a really great chase through the city. And we see just how well-constructed the ape city is. There's this amphitheater. It's built into the cliffside. It's just a really cool set piece, and it's a really good chase. And the detail is amazing. Yeah, I really appreciate the actual set. You know, I mean, they built a block or two of Ape City, it seems, or like a circle of it, you know, at least so that they could actually shoot him running around stuff, going inside the actual buildings and stuff. Like, that, it comes across really great. He's like running through the market. Most of the time watching this, I almost got like this Greek sort of vibe off the Ape City, but this time around, I got much more of a Western vibe from it. You know, it's like the openness and the desert and the, and the horses and everything. And, and I'm almost getting one of those like really cool, like chase through cowboy town moment here where he's running running around rooftops yeah definitely kind of a butch Cassidy and the sundance kid vibe and when they finally catch him that's when he says his iconic line why did you run away security police i'm in charge of this man no longer madam he is now in the custody of the ministry of science Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! And that's the first time any of them have heard him talk. <gasps> he can talk. He can talk, 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 I can sing! They hose him down with a fire hose. <laughs> and that is some big symbolism because I feel like the protests in the South where the police turned fire hoses on the black marchers was still pretty fresh in people's minds. This is not an example of death of the author. This is very blatantly meant to be an allusion to civil rights. You're 100% correct. And it works too. You know, it works without being tasteless, you know? There's just a certain way that it's done. Maybe it's that you don't look at it and go, well, I, you know, maybe they shouldn't have done that. Instead, you look at it and go, wow, that's kind of profound. You know, like, <laughs> again, it maybe it's just all just seeing it through the lens of the tables being turned and all, but it just, 
it's scary, you know, like, again, like, none of it ever comes across as laughable or jokey to me, which, you know, we'll get into some of that down the line with the rest of the series, perhaps. But here, it's working. It's working for me really well. That's really the strength of this movie, is that they portray the ape society doing things that we find totally abhorrent, but which are all things that we've done. That's what makes it so effective. I, I almost got this other sense that Ape Society has sort of, I don't know, like halted in a way, you know, like I think Chris mentioned earlier, they almost seem to be like on the precipice of like the next step or something in their society's evolution. And that might be like saying, you know, this is a city that's an amalgam of all these antiquated ideas, right? And like, look at a society that's adopted all of them. And, you know, this could very much be our future sort of a regression. Yeah. Speaking of regressions, the next step is this bizarre kind of crucible-esque kangaroo court where Taylor is brought before a tribunal with Dr. Zayas and two other orangutans. To me, this time watching it, it's definitely just trying to convey their belief system. And this is where we get into how could man have evolved from ape and, you know, ape evolved from man and I will say this, like, originally, this was my most sort of confounding part of the movie. I wasn't quite sure as a kid what all this meant. But nowadays, it's just like they're putting on this big show for Taylor and showing him, you think you're smart and all this. Look at us. Like, we're smart, too. Like, we're running shit and, like, there's nothing you can do about it. And it really kind of feels like Dr. Zayas, you know, really sticking it to him. I feel like there's a lot of movies or a lot of stories where someone is just stuck in the justice system and there's no way out and there's an illusion of there being a fair trial but the decision has already been made and this is one of those times they need to make an example of taylor they need to show to the rest of ape society that humans are not intelligent and this is a fluke and it's so frustrating for taylor because he just wants to prove to them, like, hey, I'm intelligent, I have free will, but his fate has already been sealed. You get some rhetoric from Dr. Zayas here that it's it's stuff that was rhetoric on our planet Earth around the time of the slave trade, and then far later than that, this idea that the white man was God's creature and was given a soul, and uh, that the... The African is this the savage who uh, who needs to be tamed and is better off being tamed. All of that is stuff that comes out of Doctor Zayas's mouth about Taylor and about the subhuman human species, sub ape species. I guess it would be in this world. <laughs> I think so. Uh, it's it's almost remarkable that they even take Taylor to court like this. Like that Doctor Zayas is even going to go along with the charade to this extent, you know, and that Cornelius and Zira they're committing basically professional suicide with this case of theirs and everything you know i get the sense they don't even really know the gravity of the situation that they're in the middle of but this is also where charlton heston's like i came with other guys you know there's another guy there's landon you know i know for sure landon was was captured too and Mm -hmm. and they take him to go see landon and and he's been lobotomized you know and it's like oh Oh, it's like man his one hope and it's really creepy because Landon looks just like Heston and it's like he's looking you know it's like a mirror image right there in that frame it's just like oh you're trapped buddy like 
There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, it's, that's a really scary moment. Yeah, you fear for Heston, like, you know, that he's done in this situation, but there's also this idea that these apes are just carving up humans and doing experiments on them, trying to, trying to see if they could find the soul or something, something really antiquated and gross, and it's, uh, it's a very, very unsettling scene. For obvious reasons, it reminded me of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, because from this point on, he realizes that if he's under their custody and he gets out of line, they could just take a chunk of his brain out. And that raises the stakes dramatically because he knows now that he's got to get out of there. Yeah, they basically come to the conclusion or they pass judgment on him that, you know, he's basically a mutant and a freak and they're going to dispose of him because he's one of a kind and we get rid of him and get rid of the problem. So for Taylor, you know, it's life or death. He's got to escape from this. Yeah, and I mean, when you're talking about Zayas before, as he's the antagonist, but at times you're not sure if he's an outright bad guy or just someone who so strongly believes in his doctrine that it's it's blind to anything else. And this is the mm. part where I can't really agree with that. Right? I feel like Zayas is a monster. He's basically like a Mangler. I guess the difference there is that Mangler was doing it on other humans. I guess he'd be more like that if he was experimenting on other apes. But knowing what we know as the audience that humans you know, do have souls and they are not just animal creatures. Yeah, no, I can't get behind the idea that Zayas is anything more than like a horrendous villain. There's one particular scene that really tips the scales for me where I just have like no sympathy for him whatsoever. And, and it's the moment after the trial where he basically brings Taylor into his office mm-hmm. and he's like, yeah, you know, I know you're right, but no one else is going to ever know you're right because we're, you're, you know, we're just going to experiment on you. It's going to be a slow, painful death, and that's going to be the end of it. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, those are your true colors, like because there's a right way to do things in the wrong way. I feel like you could be this benevolent sort of guy who's really trying to hide the truth or what you believe in your cause so much you don't realize it's bad, but you eventually come to the realization, like, what have I wrought? But I get the sense that Zeus is never going to do that. He just, no, he's he is evil deep down. Zira and Cornelius, with the help of their nephew, Lucius, who is pretty much the avatar of the modern counterculture teen of the late 60s, break Taylor out of jail, and they take him to the excavation site that Cornelius was working on where he discovered early human remains. Yeah, I love that we get to the dig site that was um, mentioned earlier, because Cornelius is like, he's Indiana Jones, he's an archaeologist, you know, he's out there in the Forbidden Zone, digging stuff up about the past, and it's a miracle he even got a permit to do that, but he went out there. Well, he's a little more of a nerd than Indiana Jones. I think Cornelius is like one of the first, like, nerd heroes (laughs) of, of modern film. Dr. Jones was kind of a nerd, right? He was a professor, you know, he was caught with glasses and a a vest on a couple times. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Shortly after they get there, they're tracked down by Dr. Zayas and the security forces of Ape Town, USA. But they manage to take Dr. Zayas hostage, and they bring him in to the dig site where they have dug up some artifacts from the human world. Yeah, baby doll. Is, is among them. What else? What else is there? Is there anything else? False teeth and eyeglasses, ah, I think. Yes. And like, um, maybe I think, didn't he find a, a heart valve too? <laughs> you know, it's a, yeah, yeah. It's great. It's, I love this moment because, um, they explain that 
the deeper they dig and the farther back they go, the more advanced the society seemed, right? Like, yeah. it doesn't make sense. You know, Cornelius is like, Dr. Zay is like, what is going on here? Like, you know, how do you even explain this? And then they, they find the human doll. And Zayas is like, ah, you know, my niece plays with human dolls. And the doll, like, gets knocked out of someone's hand and it starts talking. And Heston's like, does she play with a doll that talks? Pretty good. <laughs> By the way, Mike, your Heston is fantastic. Yeah. Oh, thanks. This is kind of where Dr. Zayas cracks. And as we were saying before, he knows what happened. He knows that the humans came before and the humans messed everything up. And the purpose of the religion, of the scrolls of the lawgiver or whatever, were to keep the humans down because they don't want a repeat of what happened before. And he's not wrong, and that's what makes Dr. Zayas's actions up to this point almost kind of understandable. Man was here first, ruling your science, your culture, whatever civilization you've got. But an answer be this. If man was superior, why didn't he survive? Wiped out by a plague, some natural catastrophe, a storm of meteors. Now, looks at some parts of this planet, I'd say that was a fair bet. But we can't be sure. He is. He knew all the time, long before you found your cave, did you? Defender of the safe, guardian of the terrible secret. That's it, isn't it, Doctor? What I know of man was written long ago. Set down by the greatest ape of all, our lawgiver. Cornelius, come here. Reach into my pocket. Read to him the 29th scroll. Sixth verse. Beware the beast man, for he is the devil's pawn. Alone among God's primates, he kills for sport, or lust, or greed. Yea, he will murder his brother to possess his brother's land. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. Shun him. Drive him back into his jungle lair, for he is the harbinger of death. Yeah, that's the thing, man. He's such, like, a conflicting character, right? Because what would you do in that situation? It, I can't believe that he was able to keep the charade as long as he is, and he's going to go on keeping this charade, too. But it also gives new meaning to the Forbidden Zone. I mean, it's not that you can't survive out there. It's not that there's nothing out there. It's that it's forbidden to the apes to go there, because that's where the past lies, you know, and the past needs to be forgotten. Yeah, it's forbidden knowledge. My biggest question was... Who was the person who wrote the scrolls? Who is this lawgiver? Because they keep mentioning the lawgiver. If I'm not mistaken, uh, Mike, I'm, that will be revealed? It will be revealed. Yeah. Whether or not it was originally even intended to be revealed is a question I had upon rewatching this one time. You know, I, oh, yeah. I was almost saying, like, was there really a lawgiver or is this Dr. Zayas is, you know, is he the man behind the curtain, right? And he is the lawgiver and he, you know, it's it's a pseudonym or something like, or does, is he just part of the sect that changes things throughout the years? Maybe at one point these were written and now that he's part of the 
group that keeps them, you know, that upholds these laws and stuff. But yeah, they will sort of touch upon the lawgiver down the line in the series. I think they there's a ape funeral in this movie and you see a statue of the lawgiver and they mention him there. So it's definitely like their god figurehead. I think I agree with you here that uh, Rod Serling did not write this with that idea in mind. And I agree with you. I really feel, again, like my idea of him being like this early papal figure is that Zeus and this tribunal are kind of the people that, you know, maybe they have the original scrolls, you know, like they're Dead Sea Scrolls, the first books and the prophets, but they're the ones who decide for whatever reason, which are the ones that get to be official, which ones go in like the big book. Like there's all this stuff about how there's Bible verses that various popes or, or, religions just cut. I, I feel like that's kind of Zeus's thing, is he's doling out just the information that he feels will be best for the people, and that there's just years and generations, it seems like, of that being passed down, this burden of being the one with all of the knowledge, and how you correctly give that to, you know, the simpletons, the plebs. Yeah, and I think part of that is what creates what I view like ape society as being you know stunted you know you can't let them get too far or else they'll start getting ideas it seems so he needs to be sure that he keeps up like his doctrine every so often and the people don't get too smart to question it the term lawgiver i again was not very familiar with planet of the apes or the planet of the apes mythology but i was familiar with mystery science theater 3000. oh it's definitely a reference yeah and when they did a reboot when they moved to the sci-fi channel in the late 90s the mad scientist mrs forrester traveled around with an ape who called her the lawgiver and i never understood what that meant well then are we all set all on the same page good Human civilization is dead and apes rule the world. Everything you ever knew or loved is no more. Well, your movie this week. Movies? What do you mean movies? Why are you showing us movies? Ape law. It's ape law. The lawgiver brings us these films. Do you not know of the lawgiver? They have no soul. You're right. Well, your movie this week is The Revenge of the Creature. It is a sequel to The Creature of the Black Lagoon. There are monkeys in this movie. Indeed. <laughs> Great. 500 years in the future and we're still watching bad movies. The makeup on these apes. Let's talk about that for a minute. For the late 60s, very impressive. I mean, the mouths leave a lot to be desired, but they allowed for the expression in the eyes to be there. And that is really what makes the characters who they are. I yeah. think different actors ended up adapting differently to the makeup. I think some really owned it. I think some didn't. And I think Kim Hunter as Dr. Zira, is, it's mind-blowing what she manages to do with the makeup on her. Because she is by far the most, uh, what's the word I'm looking expressive? for? Expressive? Yes, express, absolutely expressive of all of the apes by far. Yeah, and I think she's on screen most, so she probably got the most attention to detail with her prosthetics and stuff. Um, but I, I think, you know, like I mentioned at first, I think the gorillas look the best. And I think that's partially because they don't speak very much. You know, they don't move their mouths, so they're always just sort of static there, and they look great. And then I think the chimps are good because Kim Hunter's doing stuff, and then Roddy McDowell's doing this crazy thing with his nose, you know, where it almost looks like he's always sniffing or something, and it just gives him, like, this distinct, curious look to him. The other thing about the chimp makeup, to me, is, you know, at first, 
you don't know this is Earth, right? So they look great as just humanoid ape aliens. If you found out this was just another planet and stuff, like you could buy it that apes evolved this way, you know, to, to be anthropomorphic and that, yeah, I totally buy it even by today's standards. You know, today they have to use CGI and motion capture to do ape makeup. But I think the one saving grace of that Mark Wahlberg version is the actual makeup. You know, I think every time you go back and apply it and you have it really there on camera, I think you get your best results. It speaks a lot for the actors who portrayed Zira and Cornelius and Dr. Zayas that basically the mouth was, you know, a flappy prosthetic. Mm. So all of their acting had to be done through the eyes. And, you know, they sell it. Yeah, one of the other big problems with makeup generally is, like, a lot of times it covers the eyes. And, you know, that's why a lot of superhero wearing masks, a lot of times you get the superhero out of their mask in the third act and run around so you can see their face better. And, yeah, the eyes are the most expressive. They're the window to the soul. And they definitely, you know, have to be more expressive because they lose the use of, like you said, their mouth for the most part. So uh, an interesting thing about makeup this movie was nominated for two oscars costume design and original score both of which are obviously great there was no award category for makeup achievement or special effects or anything like that so they just gave john chambers the makeup guy an academy award for it like and i'm not talking about like oh we fucked up and never gave hitchcock an oscar let's right. give one to him when like maybe he's not gonna be around much longer no that year they just were like dude Here's an Oscar. You nailed it. That's incredible. <laughs> well, he earned it. Oh, yeah. And let's talk about the music for a second. The music is great, but it's also very much a product of its time. When you listen to the score, it's very much 60s. There's a lot of horns. There's a lot of drums. It's very specific to the late 60s, but it's great. I like when it's tribal, you know, when things start to get like more exciting. It's got much more of a tribal thing with the with the horns blowing and the drums going. But then I also love when it's being weird and and soft and relaxed and it's just these few piano notes, you know, and like another strange sound. It almost I don't know what instrument they're using back there, but I mean it's it sounds great and haunting, you know. So that it'll sort of like trick you and get kind of slow and then burst into like an action scene the music kind of serves the same sort of contrast like it's got this nice soft section and then it's got this great heavy section the scales that are used are definitely meant to evoke they're supposed to be you know there's just like a, a minor key it's used mm-hmm. to sound sad this is a scale that is definitely meant to just sound off yes and it works very well yeah that's a good point like all of the music sounds warped sounds bizarre it sounds it almost kind of makes you feel uncomfortable it's almost as if the apes are playing the instruments right and they don't know how to play them all correctly or read the notes in the right way yeah well here we are at the end of the movie um dr zayas has made his confession taylor keeps him hostage long enough for him and nova to ride off down the beach and they come across the Statue of Liberty. What's left of it. Yeah. <laughs> and what I always wondered about this ending, and I still wonder, is does Dr. Zayas not know what, what the Statue of Liberty is or was, and so that's why he doesn't necessarily tell Taylor? Or is it more of like he 
comes to this point of respect and he's like, for once, I'm going to treat you like a human and let you go not spoil this. And, you know, you'll find out on your own. I mean, the horror of it, I don't think Taylor would have believed them in the first place. So it is something you sort of have to see for yourself to believe. But I always wondered why like, he's just like, lets him, not lets him go, but he's just like, you know, he just says to him, you'll find what you're looking for, but you might not like it. It's tough to say, especially since Zayas just salts the earth here when he blows up the cave mm. and says to basically Zira and Cornelius are just going to be accused of heresy and there won't be any proof. We're going to blow up this whole idea. I feel like in 2000 years of ape time, there's going to be like an ape Da Vinci code where like someone... <laughs> finds like <laughs> it was all covered up it's it's actually there's a civilization before and i have the proof zayas does salt the earth and i never thought of it that way but you're right i think he maybe doesn't know what the statue of liberty is but he says let him go find what was left and let it destroy him yeah i think you're completely right he could at this point let the security forces hunt taylor down but he does because he knows that the, the truth will probably be more devastating than anything they can do to him. Yeah, the best case scenario is that he just says, ah, well, fuck it, he'll go die in the Forbidden Zone. That's the nicest possible thing Zayas could be doing right here. So that's Planet of the Apes. Do you guys have any uh, any final thoughts? I want to go back uh, very briefly to the, uh, what was the, the kid ape's name? Julius. I mentioned yes. at, the, at the beginning that I thought the biggest misstep in pacing was the first 20 minutes. I think script-wise, the biggest misstep is any time that Charlton Heston talks to Julius. I get what they're going for, but it, it always sounds like Heston is trying to be the cool older teacher, getting real with the students every time he tries to talk to him. Like, oh no, my dad was Mr. Taylor. You can call me Charlton. Like, I really, I, I, it really falls flat for me. And it just seems like a place where you know, we, we may have gone too far in a few places. Like, it maybe didn't have to shoehorn that social kind of uh, commentary in right there. Maybe you had enough at that point. I feel like they could have cut him out entirely. I feel like they maybe could have done something else with Nova. It, it just feels like a, an aspect of the movie that was completely wasted other than like what I, you know, I, I said I think she's there for a thematic reason. I still feel like she's wasted in some ways. Mm-hmm. That's it. I mean, those are my biggest complaints about the movie. I think it's a great movie. I think it's an important sci-fi movie. Those are just the two places. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's a... We've talked about what we think are maybe perfect films on this podcast and, and page club before. I don't think this is perfect, but I think it's damn near close. Yeah, I, I had sort of the same issues with the character, and I think it's because it's, you know, so late into the film and we're finally introduced to a teenager ape, and he just comes across kind of awkward mm-hmm. around all these adults that have been, you know, we've been following for the whole film, and... I don't think an intent of the filmmakers was for him to come across as funny. I do think that he is maybe one of the moments that the theme or the point they're trying to make is really overt and kind of glaring. And they kind of maybe this might be the one misstep that, you know, keeps it from being, you know, close to perfect film in itself is like the portrayal of the actual youth of the time that are going to see this movie. You know, it's like the one time it gets like too close to reality maybe and that's kind of why it might not work quite as well as everything else but yeah i mean aside from that i loved you know rewatching it again this time I, I maybe took one break to go to the bathroom but like ultimately it was like a straight watch through i could watch it's like a desert island film i could watch this forever basically i mean 
if we get to the sequels, we'll talk about those. I mean, I'm not going to be praising them as hard as this, not all of them, but there's stuff to talk about with each of them that I think would be pretty interesting. So Yeah, I mean, like I said before, this was my first time seeing this movie, and I was impressed on pretty much every level, like the, the art direction, the makeup, the music, the script. I'm a sucker for old Twilight Zone episodes, and this was like the ultimate movie version of a Twilight Zone episode. And it was great, and I loved it, and I was expecting schlock. I really was. I was, And, and it kind of is a little schlocky. You know, a, a spaceship crashes down on a planet, a guy's captured by apes. The premise on paper, like I said before, is schlocky, but it's great. It works on every level, and I love it. Yeah, I think one of the big surprises of this movie is people watch it and they go, wow, I didn't expect it to be, like, such a good movie, you know? I think they have the same sort of biases, whereas, like, it does seem like it should be just schlock B-movie entertainment, and it would be, I feel like, in lesser hands. And it's just, like, there's just good talent behind this, and they took it real seriously, and yeah, like, they had Rod Serling working on the project, so he brings a lot of clout, and it was just, like, this rare moment where they were able to make this movie and treat it seriously, and they pull it off incredibly. I love that this movie sort of typecast Charlton Heston, because, <laughs> I mean, he was, like, Moses before this and all of that, but I just love the idea that in a couple of years he's going to make Soylent Green, which is, uh, yes. in so many ways, a similar movie. Yeah, he somehow became sort of this, like, advocate in a weird way, right? Like, through films, like, saving the planet with his messages in movies in, like, this part of his career, which was very different than any other part of his film career or later on in life, oh, yeah. you know, his political stance. So it's kind of amazing that it's Charlton Heston at this time. I love Charlton Heston as an actor. He's a guy yeah. where you kind of have to, maybe, maybe don't have to, but uh, as, as a proud liptard, I kind of have to separate his politics from his acting. But I do, I, I think he's great in just about everything he's in. Well, we can all agree that Planet of the Apes was awesome. And unfortunately, we're going to dive back into a pool of <laughs> shitty, shitty monkey movies from here on out. But, uh, Mike, it was great to have you here for this one. Thank you so much for having me, guys. And it was great to have an excuse to finally sit down and watch this. This has been Monkey Club. I'm Christian Larson. I'm Chris Mattiello. And that was Mike Manzi. We are part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more, you can visit cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me, where you can find out what's going on with Cage Club. Monkey Club, Zack Attack, and of course, Keanu Club. Mike, why don't you give us an update of what's happening with Keanu Club right now? Oh, uh, I believe we, we're somewhere around episode 13 or 14 right now, so uh, we're slowly approaching the stuff that he's more well known for. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> it's it's going to be a long journey, but we hope you join us. Well, awesome. Thank you for joining us, Mike, and... Have a good night, everybody. Oh, my God. I'm back. I'm home. All the time. We finally really did it. You maniacs! You blew it up! Ah, damn you!
Dr. Zayas. What's wrong with me? I think you're crazy. Want a second opinion? You're all so lazy. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Oh, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Can I play the piano anymore? Of course you can. Well, I couldn't before. This play has everything. I love legitimate theater. I hate every ape I see, from chimpanzee to chimpanzee. No, you'll never make a monkey out of me. Oh my God, I was wrong. It was Earth all along. You finally made a monkey. Yes, we finally made a monkey. Yes, you finally made a monkey out of me. I love you, Dr. Zayas. 